This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement, by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit hrsa.gov. Welcome in to another episode of Rural Roads, the Arcor podcast, where we discuss the stories, individuals, and everything else within the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I'm your host, Tim Raybolt with JBS International. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder on some of the ways you could stay connected and informed of all the latest Arcor information, updates, resources, and more. As always, you can visit the Arcor TA portal, check out the new modules on the LMS, and keep up with the monthly newsletter and weekly roundup emails. You can also follow us on social media by liking Arcor TA News on Facebook and following Arcor TA on both Twitter and Instagram. Today's episode is a part of our Family Perspective series where we talk with parents, siblings, and other family members directly impacted by substance use disorder and the overdose crisis. Our co-host Robert Childs talks with a colleague of his, Diane Carden, to hear more about her family's story. Let's listen in. Thank you so much, Tim. And I'm really honored today that we have the brilliant Diane Carden Glenn with us from Greenville, North Carolina. I've known Diane for a while, and it's an utter blessing to be able to spend some more time with her today, where we learn about Michael and her experiences as a parent. And so, Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, we're continuing our our series where we're talking to people who have lost loved ones to drug overdose today. And so we really appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing your story with us today. And thank you so much again for taking the time to talk to us about Michael. But I was wondering if we could start off, if you don't mind sharing a little about yourself and about Michael with us today. I'm Diane Carden glenn I'm the founder and executive director of Ecom for Change, uh, which is a syringe service program um, in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, we're run entirely uh, by volunteers. Ekum is Mike spelled backwards. And in some Middle Eastern language, it means sowing seeds. So it's sowing seeds for change. A little bit about Michael. Michael's my oldest son. He, As a child, Michael was one of those kids that always pushed the limits, always went beyond what he needed to do. He was always the one with the broken arm or the broken leg. He's the one that rode the bicycle when the doctor told him that he needed to take it easy and got on a bicycle and we lived on a cul-de-sac and he rode round and round but couldn't stop. And every time he went by the house, he yelled, mom. And so the neighbors called me and said, you might want to go out and um, help Mike get off his bicycle because he can't stop. Michael was one of those kinds of children. He wanted to be a psychiatrist. He graduated from high school, went to NC State to take pre-med. He was there, graduated magna cum laude, came home and to get ready to apply for medical school. And but wasn't very long after he was home that we knew that there was or discovered there was some kind of an issue. And um, we sat down at the table um, to talk about it. And he um, had become dependent on heroin while he was in school. And at that time, the signs were there. I just didn't see them. So he came home. We talked to a lot of therapists, decided he was not going to get into medical school. He decided to become a social worker. And he went to school here at ECU. To, and got a degree in social work substance use. During that time, he was on methadone. <clears throat> and during that time, he also taught me a whole lot about people who use drugs, how they should be treated, and what they what they needed from their family. He moved to New York and got really involved in New York with the harm reduction movement. And, and 
his he felt like that people who use drugs should not be treated any different than anybody else, either for their medical care or for anything else, and got really involved with hepatitis C to show that people who had hep C should be able to get treatment just like everybody else and if, if were, at, were not at any bigger risk of becoming reinfected than anyone else. During the time while he was there, um, Michael did um, relapse more than one time. And um, during that time, um, as parents, um, if, if you've had a child for many years, you have that conversation. Um, he had asked for my social security number for um, his 401k and his life insurance policy. So we had that conversation. What would you want me to do if something were to happen to you? And um, he said to use it to help people who were like him. Um, people, or Michael overdosed and um, passed away in 2012. And so um, I took that, the money that he left to start Ekam for Change. That might have been too long. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. And thank you for giving us some background information and sharing about Michael, because I was actually working in New York when he was also working in New York. And I just remember him just having a really phenomenal reputation for advocating for those who are impacted by substance use disorder and people who use drugs. And he was such a wonderful figure, an important figure there in helping folks out. And I was wondering if you could share with us when you found out that he had sadly passed away, what what do you think would have, what do you wish you knew? What kind of support was helpful to you? What do you, what would you like other family members to know that you may not have known at the time? And what what kind of information do you think is helpful for folks to know about dealing with a situation like this, which is really inc- as difficult as it gets in this human experience? Yeah, um, and I, I don't think you're ever you think you are prepared, especially if, um, as in Michael's case, it, it extended over several years. I think that that one of the most important things um, for for me, which is what I learned from Michael himself, was that it's nobody's fault. Um, we tend to place a lot of blame. Um, on whose fault it is. And it wasn't his fault. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't the fault of the person that um, he, you know, bought the the substance from. Um, it wasn't his counselor's fault. It's one of those things where that you, you can't really place blame. You just have to do a lot of forgiving. After he passed away, I was searching, as most parents do, for something, somebody to talk to, some somebody who knew where I was at. Because if it hasn't happened to you, if you haven't been there... <clears throat> You, a lot of people will tell you how they felt when their pet died or when their parent died or when, but it's not the same as losing a child. And it's also not the same as losing a child to substance use. There's a, um, a, a big difference on how the community may approach that. So I, I took um, some of the money that, that Michael left me and decided that I wanted to know a whole lot about harm reduction and about people who use substances. And, and so I went to a conference and where I could meet meet people who were like Michael professionally, as well as who had maybe had previous experience. And while I was there, there was a program called GRASP. It's G-R-E-S-P, Grief Recovery After Substance Passing. <clears throat> and I met with them and found that I wasn't alone and I wasn't the only one. And I, I wasn't the only one who felt like that I felt. And they had an online group. We met there and talked. And so I got really involved in GRASP both as a, a place where that I could get support for myself from other people who understood and actually still, all these years later, have a con- an awesome connection with them. But also an opportunity as newer people joined the program to be able to say, I totally understand. I've been there. I know how you feel and offer some real support to, to other parents. 
And Diane, thank you so much for sharing that, specifically that information about grass, because I feel like a lot of our rural folks across America don't know about grasp. And I've, when I've worked with directly impacted parents and family members who've lost someone, they have found grass to be like one of the most helpful resources, period, in helping them through some of the most challenging times of their lives. And I'm so appreciative that you have helped expand grass impact in North Carolina and the South. And it's just such a phenomenal group to help people and provide them some of that support family member to family member that's out there. And it's such an important thing. And we will try and put the graphs information in the show notes for the, the meeting today so folks can learn more about it and the amazing supports it provides nationally. So taking a step back with your, after the passing of Michael, you mentioned that you worked with, you started, you eventually started Ecom for Change. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of that work as well because it is really important work finding and helping people in Easton, North Carolina. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your work in that and how you're helping others through that work. Um, for about um, three or four years after Michael's passing, there there were not, it was not legal in North Carolina to have syringe programs or a program like I have. For three or four years, I worked with other organizations, did some, le- helped with some legislative work, encouraged different kinds of bills like the Good Samaritan Law. And then finally, they did pass the law for syringe programs to be in North Carolina. So at that time, I took the I was in donated space. Someone offered uh, to let me use their space because I didn't have a whole lot of money. And so at that time, I set up and just by word of mouth, let people know that that we were there. So when we first opened, there nobody came. And so every Saturday, we're open from one to four. And so the next week that we were open, there was a car that pulled up, but one person got out. And she came in. And for the next three weeks, she came in by herself and picked up supplies. And at that time, we basically just had supplies to um, to help people to be safe and if they were going to inject substances to do it safely and to get education on um, how to do that and offer if they wanted to do something different that we would help them. So after, after about four or five times, the other, she opened the door and said, it's okay, you can come in. They're nice here. So about five or six people piled out of the car. And, and from that point forward, over the next, it's been six years, now on Saturdays, we see about 130 people on a Saturday. During that time, the really important thing was that we met their needs. I could tell you all day long what I think they needed, but they needed to tell me what we didn't have, what we could provide that, that would be helpful to them. One of the things that we did was we started to put fruit on the table. And so we had apples and some other things, but the apples were never, ever taken. After a month or two, we asked, Is there, do you not like apples? And what they said was, our teeth are bad and we can't eat apples. And it was really a learning experience that, that we, really, we really needed for them to tell us what they needed and not for me to go to the grocery store and pick what I thought were some really pretty shining red apples when they couldn't eat them. So we started to get bananas and other things. And so the program grew so that what else do you need? And uh, so we have hygiene products, toothbrushes, toothpaste. Soap. Actually, a, a story about soap is someone offered to to give us like a whole bag of soaps that came from they they traveled that came from different hotels. So we put those like on a bat in a basket, and someone came in and picked up one of those piece one of the small bars of soap, and said, "This is just like what I got in jail." And so it really made us stop and think that we thought we were doing a really good thing, but what was a really good thing would be for them to have a real bar of soap. And so we we asked what. What kind of soap would you want? And everybody said that they wanted Dove. 
because it smelled good. And so that told us a whole lot about what was important to them. It was important to them that they were clean, that they smelled good, that they had something just everybody else has, that we didn't cut back just because they were people that used substances. So I, that was always really important to us and still is. We ask on a regular basis, what don't we have? What would you like for us to have? What can we help you with? I just talked to someone the other day who was willing to help with maybe some dental work. And because they there were some folks, they come back sometimes even after. They're not um, there to get syringes or needles, but they're in some form of recovery. And they just come back to say hello and get some hygiene things and said they were having a hard time getting a, a job because of their appearance, because their teeth were really bad. So it's, okay, that's something maybe we can look at. So we, we just need to look at the whole person and not just the fact that this person has a substance problem. Thanks so much, Diane. And it, it's so amazing that in honoring Michael's memory and doing all that amazing work is just brilliant and fantastic and helping a lot of folks in East North Carolina get some of the services that they can't get anywhere else. So it's just amazing the work that you've done over there to support folks who need your love and care, right? And so I just wanted to take a step back when we're talking about you work with groups and family supports is if somebody has had a really tough situation occur to them where they've lost a family member, if like, how do people, like, how do you recommend people approach GRASP and access their resources? Because again, a lot of folks haven't heard of that. And this very limited family support networks, I was just talking with some parents here who'd lost their children and they were talking to me about just that there wasn't anything and they hadn't heard of GRASP. And I was like referring them over to the closest chapter, but if you could talk a bit about how people can access those services and because I think it's something that is just that there just isn't enough public knowledge on its support and work. There, there if you search, just search for GRASP, they, they have an online group. It runs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can uh, talk about whatever issue you have, however you're feeling <clears throat> um, on the program. And then there are several GRASP chapters um, all over the United States. I, I run a GRASP chapter here. And um, so it's just a, a group of parents and um, sometimes siblings. Uh, we meet once a month or sooner or if we need to. Sometimes someone will call and, and say, Diane, I'm having a really hard, I'm having a bad day. Can you meet me somewhere? Or can we just do a Zoom? Or can I talk to you on the phone? And so that availability is out there from GRASP leaders. We It's a non-denominational, there's no, most meetings, at least most of our meetings, um, are just open to whatever people want to talk about every week or every month, some there's a different issue. Of course, around holidays, sometimes it's a little bit harder for people, but then there are birthdays and anniversaries and things that come up during the week where people just need one-on-one -on -one somebody to talk to. Grasp leaders were trained, and it was just an awesome thing for me but way back when I started to always have a voice or some, or if it was midnight and I couldn't sleep, I could get up and turn on my computer and go downstairs and there would be somebody there that I could talk to or could give me some advice. That's I'm so glad to hear that's out there and available to people. And also, I think one of the things that you've highlighted is finding others who have been through the same thing. And can you talk a, a bit more about the value of talking to someone who's also been through the same situation? Because I think in when we're looking at offering support around grief, it's just so important to talk to someone who's also been through it. And so if you don't mind expanding a little bit on that in itself. Sure, I can. So I can, I'll just I can tell you a personal story. 
the neighborhood that that I live in, no one here has ever had any kind of, that I know of has had any lost anybody to substance use. And when Michael died, and this is the South, and in the South you just get tons of food. That's what people do for comfort. They bring they bring you food. That didn't happen here because that they were just had a really hard time with how it was that Michael did die and didn't know how to respond to it, didn't know how to talk to me, and didn't want to come to the door with a a, a bowl full of chicken. My my neighbor next door put up a five foot fence like it was a disease, and and we could maybe give it to her and her grandchildren. So having a place like Grasp, where somebody really understands what it feels like. Sometimes you want to talk and, and sometimes you don't want to talk at all. Some, sometimes you want advice and sometimes you really don't want anybody to give you any advice. You just want them to listen to you and how that you feel. And I think that is something that um, you have to have been there, have to have experienced losing um, a, a child to substance use or a sibling um, to substance use or a parent in order to understand how that really feels not just the death itself, but most families who were aware and have maybe struggled for years with their child's substance use and how they dealt with it and the recoveries and relapses and all kinds of things. Um, it, another set of parents or family members or people who, who have been there and truly understand are, are really comforting because you don't feel like you're alone, like you're totally alone out there. And yes, I know how hard it is to lose a parent, but that's not the same as losing a, a child or a family member suddenly to substance use. And Diane, you brought up the issue around stigma, and I'm appreciative that you did do that. Can you talk a little bit more about like how you've seen stigma against substance use disorder and people passing change over the last couple of years? Are you still seeing parents and family members experience such stigma, or you see any hope for the future? I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. I think there's hope for the for the future, it has a lot to do with education, to the educating people what substance use disorder is, how it happens, what the struggles are to help people understand that, that it's a disease, and also the struggles that families go through during, during that time. I can't honestly say that I've seen a huge change. The biggest change that, that I've seen is when I have somebody come to a GRASP meeting who um, maybe didn't lose a child or a parent, but maybe as a cousin or something. And it's they come because they want to, they were really close to the cousin and they didn't understand it and maybe um, were a part of what they call tough love and then want to learn more from other people. So I think it's really important that we continue to address um, stigma around, um, around substance use so that there is more compassion in the community, communities, more availability of care. Um, easier to get into the dentist, easier to um, be able to um, go to the doctor. Some physicians won't take a, a patient who has substance use problems to help just help understand that whole process. And we try to do some of that at by having folks um, come in um, to um, help to, to, we have a university here. And so some we'll invite them to come in and actually talk to folks and the trouble they're having and what the stigma around them being able to move forward, whether it's with housing or jobs or just in the regular field, and be able to take that back and do education at the university level for social workers and physicians and dentists. And are they, when you're educating medical providers especially, or social workers, are folks open to what you have to say, or how is that being going with educating them? That's really interesting. We have a lot of med students who ask to come and volunteer. Uh, they usually have to write a paper or something about substance use or social work students here who, who come. 
And some come and write their paper, and we never see them again, and they just say, what isn't for them? But there's always, there's always one or two or three that said, this is, this is what I want to do. This isn't what I thought it was going to look like. I want to help. And so we've had, I've had four uh, med students, each one that stayed with us from their first year all the way through their fourth year, um, one who changed their major. Um, we have, I've got three right now that are actually some first, second, and fourth year med students who are helping who came back, who decided to come back. And some of them go back to their class and say, "You really, really if, even if you're not going to stay and volunteer, you really need to go and see what, what it really looks like, what, you know, that these folks are just like everybody else. They have the same needs and they have the same wants and they don't look any different than anybody else. And so uh, I think that's been really successful and we're really fortunate um, to, to have those resources here and their willingness to, to come and spend some time with us. Right on. Thank you so much. And one of the other things I did want you to address, because you're coming from a unique perspective with this, is a lot of parents, after they have a pap saying of their child, want to get involved in advocacy or legal reform. And do you have any tips for them on like how to get involved in working on overdose prevention or what your experiences were? And if you could share a bit about that, would be really lovely. Yes, um, I was lucky that Michael and I had the kind of relationship where that we could talk about it. So he could tell me what he needed. He could tell me what he did some legislative work in New York, but he could tell me what kind of legislation would be helpful for people who use substances and what legislation is hurtful. So I learned a whole lot from him about what to and what what to to advocate for. There are the opioid settlement money that's available now, and there's tons of legislation right now. And so any anybody can get involved in trying to form legislation so that it will provide what is the best thing to help people who are using substances. And so contacting your legislators, I write letters just to, from my point of view. Sometimes I go visit at the Capitol just to give just to give my point of, of view. They don't always agree with me, but but it but I have a voice and we all have a voice. I think the most important thing is to if if you want to advocate for people who are using substances, it has to be really positive. It has to actually be something for them. We have to be really careful that as as parents or relatives or whatever, that we don't want to take a punitive approach because that's not shown to be helpful to help people who are using substances move forward, allowing them to make their own decisions, um, allowing them to decide what kind of treatment is best for them, allowing them to tell us what it is they need so that we can tell the people that make the laws um, what would be the most helpful for people who are using substances. So I, I encourage everybody to get involved because our voices matter and the voices of people who have lost a child um, are really important. And they will listen. They won't always agree, but they will listen. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And I remember when I was working with GRASP members in Georgia, they were, prior to working at JBS, they were one of the most powerful advocacy groups I've ever worked with. And they were able to ensure the passage of one of the most comprehensive 911 Good Sam and Naloxone laws in the country back in 2014. Yeah, they're phenomenal advocates. And yeah, and I really appreciate everything you've shared with us today because it is a hard subject and I just value you so much and your willingness to share about Michael and about your experiences as a parent. And thank you so much. And with that, we're going to close out for today. 
Thank you, Diane, for being with us. Thank you for Tim for giving us a space to have this. And we hope everybody, if you know anybody who's struggling right now, please work on helping to provide them some supports. Let them know about grass. Let them know about other support groups out there that can help them through really challenging times. Thank you, everyone, and take care of yourselves, and we'll see you soon.